1: Protest groups sustain DDoS attacks too. Old school denial of service afflicts police radio networks in Chicago. They're being jammed with talk, music, and other noise. Influencers and wannabes continue to use unrest as an occasion for online branding. The Sodino Kibi gang is selling data stolen in ransomware attacks. And Maze seems to be establishing a criminal cartel. Is email to voting what shadow IT is to the enterprise? Ben Yellen describes a federal case involving police screenshots of a suspect's phone as evidence. Our guest is Steve Durbin from the Information Security Forum on their Threat Horizon 2022 report and cybercrime for dummies. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Wednesday, June 3rd, 2020. Forbes reports that Cloudflare has observed significant distributed denial-of-service attacks against various protest and civil rights groups during unrest over the death of George Floyd. Like the denial-of-service attacks against some state-of-Minnesota sites, the attacks on the groups weren't beyond the mitigation capabilities of Cloudflare and other providers of DDoS countermeasures. There are also further evidence that DDoS is now a thoroughly commodified attack technique. Does jamming and intrusion into radio networks count as a cyber incident? Given the convergence of cyber and electronic attack, it's close enough to bear mention. And so other, more conventional forms of interference are also in evidence. The Sun-Times says the Chicago Police Department's radios have been jammed during responses to protests and rioting over the weekend. The jamming took the form of music, yelling slogans, anything to disrupt police communication. The content came from all over the political map with anti-cop music predominating, but with plenty of anti-protester remarks in the mix. A lot of the jamming seems to have been done for the lulls. There's a YouTube video the Sun-Times describes in which two clowns are heard laughing while they listen to police scanner feed of an officer trying to arrange transportation of prisoners, while music, the two skids think it's Serbian music, which in Chicago is a possibility, blasts over the police net. So again, distress continues an occasion for amusement. It's also an occasion for branding. Reuters reports on the reappearance of Anonymous during the current U.S. unrest, and the news service characterizes it as the revival of a brand by hackers and hucksters, which is probably a useful way of understanding the operation of an anarchist collective. Another class of online actors, influencers, is also actively engaged in brand building. A number of these are drawing criticism, according to the Telegraph, for showing up at protests for photo ops. Ars Technica reports that R-Evil, the ransomware gang also known as Sodinukibi, opened bidding yesterday on their cynically named site The Happy Blog for two tranches of confidential data stolen in the course of attacks on two separate companies. Some of the data are business information, Other data for sale include personal information like scanned driver's licenses. This represents an ongoing development in the history of ransomware. First, begin by encrypting files, thereby denying them to the victim. But this has limited potential. Once the targets realize the threat and start taking the precaution of routinely backing up their data, ransomware drops to the level of a nuisance. Second came data theft. The extortionists exfiltrated data and threatened to dox the victims, by releasing sensitive or embarrassing information if the victim didn't pay the ransom by the deadline. This threat to docs is a way of achieving leverage over the victim, increasing the pressure to pay. And now, in the third phase, the extortionists simply add another revenue stream. They'll not just release the victim's files, but sell them in the criminal-to-criminal underground markets. Steve Durbin is managing director of the Information Security Forum, based in London, He joins us to discuss Threat Horizon 2022, the ISF's latest annual report, which highlights the major threats that organizations can expect to face over the next two years.
0: It's an annual report that we produce, Dave, that really tries to look forward two years. We've been doing it now for probably about the best part of 10 or 11 years. Uh, And so we've built up quite uh, an amount of credibility in this particular space at forecasting some of the real themes that businesses need to be aware of uh, in order that they can better prepare themselves going forward.
1: Well, uh, let's go through the report uh, together. What are some of the key findings this year?
0: Yeah, well, we tend to break the report into into themes, and uh, three themes this year. One is about invasive technology. Uh, another is r- really focusing in on infrastructure. Uh, the fact that there is neglected infrastructure, as we refer to it out there, that we believe has the the real potential to to cripple or at least usually disrupt operations. Uh, And then the third theme, which I think is is very, very topical uh, and will stay with us for some time to come, which is all around trust. And it's really around what we believe is a crisis of trust that is going to undermine digital business going forward. So those are the three themes. And then we build on particular threats inside each of those themes. Well, let's go through them together one at a time. Sure. I mean, I think if we, if we kick off with that invasive technology that, that I referred to there, this is really about new technology. So this is about it really invading pretty much every element of daily life. You know, we're thinking here of sensors, we're thinking of cameras, we're thinking of devices in the home, offices, factories, public spaces, but pretty much everywhere. The, the first one that we pull out is around augmented attacks that, that really look at reality and uh, distort it. This is about attackers being able to gain access to sensitive information. I think that's the real uh, issue in this one. Hmm. How about the other two themes? Yeah, the the, the second one, um, which I think is is pretty topical today as well. Actually, is around behavioural analytics, uh, and we do believe that that is going to trigger what we refer to as a consumer backlash. So this is all to do with a multiplicity of devices that are out there that are sensing, that are watching, that are then being used to develop behavior analytics. Uh, and the concern that we have in this space is that increasingly, if, they're not, if that is not being done in a very transparent fashion, in a very ethical fashion, then we're going to see something of a backlash from consumers. And we're going to see intensifying scrutiny from regulators too, as the practice is, is deemed perhaps to be invasive and unethical. And then the third one deals with trust. Yeah. That's right. The third theme really looks into uh, trust in in a great deal of detail. We're all dependent upon technology, but we're somewhat dependent upon the integrity of the technology, the confidentiality of of the uh, data that is being shared. And so plenty in that particular area around uh, trust, which I think is is something that uh, we'll be focusing on for, for some time to come, frankly.
1: That's Steve Durbin from the ISF. Another development has been observed, this one attributable to a known innovator in the underworld. The gang behind Maze Ransomware last November pioneered the now-routine criminal practice of stealing data to gain leverage against their victims. Bleeping Computer reports that Maze is now leading the formation of a cartel that would enable ransomware gangs to cooperate and share information. That this is happening may be seen in the appearance on the Maze leak site of files taken from an architectural firm. These files, however, weren't taken by Mays, but rather by Lockbit, a different ransomware-as-a-service operation. Bleeping Computer, which is often remarkably successful in getting criminals at large to return their emails, contacted Mays and received an explanation of what's up. Quote, In a few days, another group will emerge on our news website. We all see in this cooperation the way leading to mutual beneficial outcome for both actor groups and companies. Even more, they use not only our platform to post the data of companies, but also our experience and reputation, building the beneficial and solid future. We treat other groups as our partners, not as our competitors. Organizational questions is behind every successful business. It's not clear how or even whether money is changing hands. Mays declined to answer a question asking whether they would receive a cut of Lockbit's take. They couldn't share the details, maybe because, hey, they're proprietary. In any case, Mays led the way in moving extortion from simple ransomware to a combination of ransomware and doxing. It may now be leading the way in cartelization. Primary voting in the U.S. proceeded this week, but difficulties in distributing and collecting postal ballots prompted some jurisdictions, including the District of Columbia, to move toward potentially risky workarounds, like voting by email, according to the Washington Post. And finally, what are people doing while socially distanced and sheltering at home? Apparently, many are considering a career in cybercrime. CyberNews thinks a lot of searching for how-to-hack information indicates widespread interest in a walk on the dark side. The searches include such terms as hacking course, ethical hacking course, how to get on the dark web, how to scam, learn hacking, and things like that. We hope these are all budding InfoSec professionals, perhaps a fresh influx of independent researchers or pen testers. But people being people, we suspect all too many of them may have crime on the mind. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. SixSense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With SixSense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose SixSense, visit SixSense.com. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security, but more importantly, my co-host on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, always great to have you back.
2: Good to be with you again, Dave. Uh,
1: On this week's Caveat, you and I covered a fascinating case, and I want to uh, share it with our CyberWire audience as well. This is a story from Ars Technica written by Kate Cox. The title is Just Turning Your Phone On Qualifies as Searching It, Court Rules. Um, boy, this is an interesting
2: one. Can you unpack it for us? It really is a fascinating case. So it is a federal case, but the incident happened in Washington state uh, about a year ago. A criminal suspect was indicted on a bunch of charges, robbery and assault. A suspect was using a smartphone. When that suspect was arrested, one of the uh, arresting officers hit the power button on that person's device to bring up that phone's lock screen. Now, the officer didn't do anything with that lock screen, but he or she must have seen something that was suspicious. As the federal government was investigating this case, it, it is a federal case, the FBI turned on the phone to take a photograph, a screenshot of that phone's lock screen. And that lock screen seemed to display the name Strezy, which uh, it appears to me from reading the story was an alias for this criminal suspect, and that was key mm. evidence used in the conviction. Hmm. So the criminal defendant sought to suppress this evidence saying that both the police officers, the arresting officers, and the FBI violated this defendant's Fourth Amendment rights by uh, simply turning on the phone and taking a screenshot of that lock screen. And the judge actually agreed with the criminal suspect, at least as it relates to the FBI taking that screenshot of the lock screen. There are additional questions about the arresting officer. It's generally legal to search somebody incident to arrest. So that's something that's going to be adjudicated in a future proceeding. But the FBI, when it turned on the phone and took that that screenshot of the lock screen, that qualifies as a search under the Fourth Amendment and therefore necessitates a warrant. Because no warrant was issued in this case, at least on those grounds, the conviction would have to be overturned. Uh, so the rationale here is particularly fascinating and I'll give just a, a very short history. Prior to the 1960s, it used to be that there would be no fourth amendment violation unless there was a physical trespass on somebody's property, whether that was their real property or their stuff, which in legal parlance is effects. That's actually the language in the fourth amendment. In the 60s, that standard changed. There was no longer a focus on a physical trespass into somebody's property. Instead, the focus turned to whether there was a violation of somebody's reasonable expectation of privacy. In 2012, the Supreme Court reconsidered uh, each of those doctrines and decided that both of those doctrines would actually suffice for a Fourth Amendment search. In other words, you could establish a Fourth Amendment search either by establishing that the government violated somebody's reasonable expectation of privacy or that there was a physical intrusion into somebody's stuff, somebody's device Mm. in this case. What the judge here says is we need not answer the question on whether this violates the defendant's reasonable expectation of privacy because what we have here is actually a physical trespass. The FBI physically took the device, pressed those two buttons to take a screenshot, That is a trespass on that person's property, and that in and of itself qualifies for a Fourth Amendment search, and therefore a warrant should have been issued. So it's really a a fascinating case. It'll be interesting to see whether this uh, logic adopted nationwide in other similar cases.
1: What do you make of this? What what is your take on it? I mean, it's fascinating to me. I I have to say I I would not have expected a ruling like this.
2: Yeah, so... This case is very analogous to the 2012 case I referenced, uh, and that's the Jones case. And in that case, the government uh, or law enforcement had placed a GPS tracking device under the hood of a suspect's car. And the majority of the Supreme Court held that that was a search simply because law enforcement trespassed on that suspect's vehicle. What Justice Alito said in his concurrence in that case is, The act of physically attaching that GPS device is completely insignificant as it relates to the question of personal privacy. The real privacy question is what happens after that device is physically attached, and that's the tracking. That's tracking an individual's location. And Hmm. so my thinking of it is, you know, the question on whether somebody's uh, fundamental rights are violated as it relates to their, uh, their personal integrity, their personal privacy generally in the digital age will not turn on whether there has been a simple physical trespass. So, you know, in my view, that shouldn't be the determining factor as to whether there has been a Fourth Amendment search. And to relate more to, you know, a number of things, including how intrusive this particular method of, of searching is, you know, you could make a case that this individual actually did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in their lock screen because it's something that a person generally shows publicly. Um, Mm -hmm. If you put your phone out on a table, if it falls out of your pocket, that's going to be something that anybody could see. That, to me, would have been a fine justification um, instead of using this more, uh, I would say, arcane 19th century physical trespass doctrine uh, to make the decision in this case.
1: Hmm. That's fascinating. All right. Well, uh, Ben Yellen, as always, thanks for joining us. And if you want to hear more about this case, uh, Ben and I spend a good deal more time on it over on the Caveat podcast. So if you have not yet checked that out, that would be an excellent chance for you to do that. Uh, So please do so. Uh, Ben, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire.
2: to share your feedback now.
1: And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using A.I. in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight A.I. with A.I.,